Hi everyone, welcome to Outgrow's Market of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Shada. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we are going to interview Jonah Berger, who is a marketing professor at Wharton and the internationally best-selling author of Contagious, Invisible Influence and The Catalyst. Hi, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to start with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. Try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first question, how long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? <laughs> uh, 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> how many hours of sleep can you survive on? Oh, I, I need eight or nine hours of sleep. Yeah. Okay. Pick one Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. Uh, Jack Dorsey. Okay. The first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word ambition. Uh, Wall Street never sleeps. That one. Gordon Gecko, <laughs> whatever that was. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the biggest mistake of your career. I uh, haven't made it yet. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, giving presents or getting presents? Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Zero. I don't drink any coffee. That's Brilliant. Easy. Okay. Uh, the most valuable skill you've learned in life? Being curious. Okay. Fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. Natural language processing. Okay. <laughs> Your favorite Tiger King character? <sighs> don't have one. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's the end of the rapid fire round. Let's go on to the bigger questions now. Uh, the first one is... <laughs> I, don't, I don't get a score like how well I did, whether I did well or better. I'm joking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well we'll let you know in the interview comments. But yeah, yeah the first bad. question in the big round is, what did you learn while writing The Catalyst? Uh, what did you specifically learn in this journey? Yeah. So uh, my, my journey to this was a little bit interesting. So I'm, I'm an academic at heart. Um, I am a professor at the Wharton School. I've been there now for 13 years, do lots of academic research on social influence, word of mouth, uh, why things catch on, and, and so on. Um, and my first book, uh, Contagious, came out, and it changed my life a little bit. So uh, I went from spending most of my time doing academic research to doing some research and teaching, but also working with a lot of companies uh, and organizations. So everything from big Fortune 500s, like the Googles and Facebooks and Apples and Nikes of the world, uh, to small startups. And I learned a lot about marketing. I learned a lot about uh, business and how modern marketing is done. Uh, and I also realized that almost every one of my clients uh, had very much the same problem, uh, which is they all had something that they wanted to change, right? So, uh, you know, marketing and sales wanted to change the customer or consumer's mind. Uh, leaders wanted to transform organizations and employees wanted to change their boss's mind. Uh, startups wanted to change industries. Nonprofits wanted to change the world. Uh, but change is really hard. Uh, often, you know, we push and we pressure and we cajole uh, and nothing happens. And so I started to wonder, well, could there be a better way? Uh, and that's really what kicked off uh, this, this journey, working with these clients, uh, trying some things I already had known about and, and thought about, but wondering, could or should there be uh, an alternate way to, to change minds uh, and an insight action? And so uh, it really kicked off a journey where, you know, I dug into the academic literature, did my own uh, primary research, but also spoke to a lot of experts, everything from top selling salespeople and transformational leaders to, you know, hostage negotiators and substance abuse counselors. And again and again, I saw the same ideas coming up. It wasn't about pushing harder. Right? Often we think it's about pushing harder and it's clear why we think that works. We wanna move a chair, pushing harder is a great way to get it to go. But when we push people, they don't go, 
right? When, when we push people, they often push back. They often do the exact opposite uh, of what we want. And so what I realized is there is a better way and it's not about pushing, it's about removing the barriers to change. Right? It's a very subtle shift, but rather than thinking about, well, what could I do to get someone to change? Instead, stepping back and saying, well, hold on, why hasn't this person changed already? right? What's stopping them? We think about, uh, in marketing, we often think about sort of a traditional funnel where someone has to be aware of something uh, before they can purchase it, obviously. Um, in some cases, the issue is awareness, but lots of times people are aware of something, but they aren't acting on it. And so why haven't they? Right? What are the barriers that are getting in their way and, and how can we mitigate them? And, and that's where the word catalyst actually comes from. So we often use the word catalyst in a very colloquial way, to say, oh, a catalyst is a change agent, uh, someone who changes things. And, and that's correct. But in chemistry, catalysts actually have a very specific meaning, right? Catalysts do create change. They do create change faster uh, and easier than other ways, uh, but they also do it in a particularly noteworthy approach. They don't push harder. They don't add more temperature. They don't add more pressure. They lower the barriers to change. They figure out an alternate way to make change happen with less energy, not, not more. And so that's really the whole idea of the book. You know, how can we change uh, people and organizations and the world more broadly, not by pushing harder, but by figuring out what's getting in the way and how we can mitigate it? That's interesting. So tell us more about the five key barriers that you do identify that catalysts take care of. Yeah, uh, what sure. are the five key barriers? Yeah, we probably don't have time to talk about all of them in depth, <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll mention each of them briefly and then maybe we can dive into one or two depending on what, uh, what you think the audience would be most interested in. Um, but again and again, you know, we saw the same five barriers uh, come up whether I was talking to uh, top-selling salespeople or parenting experts, whether I was uh, talking to um, you know, political action leaders who've uh, gotten people to switch sides in our very polarized uh, political climate uh, at the moment, uh, or talking to hostage negotiators who get people to come out with their hands up. Again and again, we saw these same barriers. Uh, and so in the book, I put them in a framework. Uh, it's called the REDUCE framework, and it's an acronym, R-E-D-U-C-E which is exactly what great catalysts do, right? They don't push harder, they don't add more pressure, they reduce the barriers uh, to change. Uh, and so reduce the R uh, is reactance, uh, and that's the idea if we, if we push people, they push back. Uh, the E is endowment, uh, which is we tend to be attached to the status quo, uh, things we're doing already. D is distance, uh, you know, too far uh, from their backyard and people tend to disregard uh, what you're asking them to do. Uh, uncertainty uh, is all about sort of switching costs and that anxiety or fear uh, about things that are new. Uh, and corroborating evidence is all about proof. Uh, and, and we need enough proof uh, or enough evidence uh, to decide something's worth doing. Interesting. So could you elaborate a bit more about uncertainty? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think a, a good way to talk about uncertainty, because I know uh, most of the folks here in a, in a marketing uh, sort of uh, role or, or think about uh, sort of marketing types of roles uh, is to talk about a company many of us know, uh, which is Dropbox. Uh, and so now we think about Dropbox as a very successful organization, billion dollar sort of unicorn business, uh, but they weren't always that way. Uh, when they launched, they had a lot of trouble. Uh, getting traction. Um, uh, essentially, people were used to storing their files on their desktop, 
right? They were used to being able to open a file and see everything uh, right there. And Dropbox was trying to get them to change. Dropbox was trying to get them to do things differently, store your files in the cloud. And people would say, well, what is the cloud? Where is the cloud? Uh, you know, what if the cloud goes down? Um, uh, you know, I feel much more comfortable if I've spent a lot of time working on something, being able to see it uh, on, my, on my desktop. And so Dropbox was trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do? Right? Uh, maybe we could invest a lot in search ads, maybe we could uh, spend a lot of money on uh, marketing or sales, but instead they did something quite interesting. Instead, they said, okay, we're gonna give it away for free. And you might say, well, hold on, how can you make money giving away something for free, right? Every, every kid who's had a lemonade stand knows you have to charge to make money, but they did and they built a billion dollar business giving away something for free because they didn't just give it away for free, uh, they used a term that many of us have heard of uh, called freemium. Right? There was a free version uh, of the product and they tried to upgrade or encourage people to upgrade to a premium version. So get two gigabytes of storage uh, for free, but eventually if you run out of those two gigabytes, you want to update, uh, up, uh, upgrade to a, a larger uh, system uh, and then you have to pay us uh, to do it. And so it's clear why customers or consumers love free, right? Something's for free, well, why, why wouldn't I do it, right? It makes it uh, much easier. I don't have to pay any money. But notice that's the same reason why organizations like it as well, right? Because if I'm trying to sell you on a new product or new service, I'm trying to convince you how good it is. And I spend a lot of time telling you how good it is and why you should do it. And you're sitting there going, well, of course you, Dropbox, would say this is good. You work for the company. Why wouldn't you say that it's good? But how do I actually know that it's good? But what freemium does is it encourages people to try it themselves and discover the value themselves. Rather than Dropbox saying, hey, you know, trust us, it's great. You can say, well, hey, trust yourself, right? Uh, of course, you know, you don't have to trust us. If you don't like it, don't buy it, but try it yourself. It does something broader, actually, much broader than Freeman, which is lower the barrier to trial. It makes it easier for people uh, to try something uh, new. Um, and because it's easier, it makes them more likely to do it uh, and more likely to realize the value themselves and continuing uh, to do it. And notice, by the way, freemium is, is a great principle. It works in some cases, but not everywhere. But it's actually just an example of a much broader phenomenon. Right? Think about uh, test drives at the car dealership, for example. When you go to a car dealership, imagine they said, oh, you want a new car? Give us $30,000 and then we'll let you check out this car. Well, no one would buy a new car. They say, well, hold on, I wanna see whether I like it before I buy it. And so that's exactly what test drives do. There's no freemium in test drives, no free version or premium version, but by lowering the barrier to trial, by making it easier for people to experience the value of the offering, it makes them more likely to switch. And, and notice that's one of the big problems of change. Anytime we're asking people to change, there are switching costs. Right? There's money, you have to buy a new product or service. There's time or effort, you have to install a new software system and figure out whether it's better. Not only are there these costs, which might make people not willing to do something, but think about when the costs occur and when the benefits occur. Right? Often the costs are very much upfront. You have to pay the money, you have to engage and spend the time before you get to experience whether that product or service is actually beneficial to you. Costs are upfront, benefits are later, Costs are also certain, benefits are uncertain. And this is what's called the cost-benefit timing gap. This is one of the big challenges of change. Costs are upfront, benefits are later, right? Well, no one would say, I wanna get costs now and benefits later. Everyone wants the benefits now 
and the cost later. If I said, hey, you know, go on this special diet and eventually lose a lot of weight and get in shape, people would say, well, no, I wanna eat the cheeseburger and the cookies now and maybe the salad later. I want the benefits now and, and the cost later. And so to overcome that cost benefit timing gap, we have to figure out how to lower the barrier to trial. We have to reduce some of the upfront costs whether they're in terms of time, money, effort, or energy, and move them to later. Allow people to get to the benefits faster so that they experience the value of the offering before we put on some of the cost. And people even think about this often when they think about you know, designing things like freemium. They say, well, look, I wanna, you know, I wanna ask for people's credit cards upfront because uh, you know, if I don't ask for their credit cards upfront, there's no way I'm gonna make money. And that's fair in some ways. Right? Certainly asking for credit cards upfront uh, is a way to encourage people to pay later. But if you think about that funnel, right? when we ask for a credit card upfront, we shrink the number of people that come in that first step. Because a bunch of people are gonna say, well, you haven't shown me any value yet. Why do I wanna give you my credit card number? Why do I wanna spend time? Why do I wanna engage in effort if I don't actually know that, that it's valuable? And so the more work, the more asks we have for the customer or consumer, whether it's monetary, paying for a product or service, but also time and effort. The more information we ask them to input, the more work we ask them to do earlier in that process, the less interested they are in doing it, not just because there's work, but because they haven't seen the benefit yet. And so we have to figure out how to move the benefits to earlier and the cost to later to reduce that uncertainty. And so that's just one example, sort of freemium and lowering the barrier to trial. I talk about three or four uh, different types of ways uh, to reduce uncertainty in the book, but that's certainly key, right? We have to ease that uncertainty because anytime we're asking people to switch to do something new, it's safer to stick with what they're doing before. For sure. Uh, what I remember from Dropbox's time when I was young was uh, they were also giving incentives if you referred someone uh, to Dropbox. So you could actually increase your 2GB storage space if I actually referred you and brought you into the Dropbox thing. Do you think that factors in into one of the five uh, uh, barriers that you've mentioned? Yeah. So word of mouth is certainly key. Um, and that's what my first book, uh, Contagious, is, is all about, how to drive word of mouth, what leads people to talk uh, and share, why some things catch on. Uh, but I think we have to be really careful uh, about things like referral bonuses. They seem like a really good idea, particularly in the short term, right? They're a great way to juice the number of referrals in the short term. The challenge is often in the long term, they're not uh, as successful as we might think, because we're essentially saying, hey, person, uh, refer if we give you enough of something else. If I pay you enough money, for example, will you refer someone to our service? If we give you enough space, will you refer someone? That certainly in the short term encourages people to refer, but it sort of crowds out their intrinsic motivation or their willingness to share without some reward, right? So then if you stop giving them the reward, they might say, well, hold on, now I don't want to refer anyone else because there's no reward to do it. And essentially the reward replaces uh, why else they might have uh, referred the business. And so while it can be good in the short term, it can certainly be detrimental uh, in, the, in the longer term. Okay, and could you speak a little bit more about recantance, the other barrier that you've mentioned? I think you mean reactance. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> reactance. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, reactance is, is the simple idea that when, when people are pushed, they often push back. Uh, and I think a, a great way to talk about reactance is uh, to use an example um, uh, that many of us are at least somewhat familiar with that happened a, a few years ago. So um, uh, many people in your audience may be familiar with Tide Pods. Uh, they're these little sort of laundry tablets uh, that you drop uh, in the laundry to make doing laundry faster and easier, but you may not know the story sort of behind them. And so 
a number of years ago, Tide, uh, owned by Procter & Gamble, was trying to figure out how to essentially um, ease the laundry making process, right? Uh, turns out laundry would actually be better if different types of detergent entered in different times in the cycle. Uh, people also complain that they don't know how much to measure and that some detergent gets on the counter and it's messy. Uh, and so Tide said, look, we can come up with a way to solve this. We'll create these little plastic tabs that release different types of detergent at different times uh, in the wash um, and think it can take a big chunk of the billion dollar laundry industry. So they introduced these things called Tide Pods. They spend $100 million on marketing. They're doing quite well, uh, but then there's a problem, uh, which is that people are eating them. Uh, and you might be sitting there going, well, what do you mean people are eating them? Uh, aren't they filled with chemicals? And they are. They are indeed filled with chemicals. Uh, and yes, people are eating them. So there was a funny video on College Humor. There was a satirical piece uh, on The Onion. Uh, and now suddenly people are challenging one another uh, to eat Tide Pods. It was called the Tide uh, Pod Challenge. Okay, mostly young people were, um, were, were doing this. And so imagine a Tide executive at the time, you're trying to figure out, well, well, hold on, people shouldn't be eating Tide Pods in the first place, but how can we stop this? Uh, and so they released a press release saying, well, don't eat Tide Pods, right? Uh, and in case that's not enough, they hire a celebrity, uh, Rob Gronk, uh, Gronkowski, uh, to shoot these public service announcements saying, don't eat Tide Pods. Is it ever safe to eat Tide Pods? No, should you ever eat them? No, 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 okay? Uh, and Tide thinks this will be the end of it. Uh, people shouldn't have done it in the first place. They released an announcement telling people not to do it, so people will stop. Uh, but if you look at the data, you see something interesting. Uh, so if you look at sort of Google searches, for example, for Tide Pods and the Tide Pod Challenge, it's kind of flat, uh, and then, uh, but slightly going up, and then you see Tide's announcement. And Tide is hoping that uh, searches will go down, interest will go down, or at least they will, worst case, won't change. But you see the opposite. Searches go way up. Right? Uh, there's a 300% increase uh, in searches for Tide Pods and the Tide Pod Challenge after Tide uh, releases these warnings. Um, uh, and visits to poison control go up as well. In the next two weeks, uh, more people come into poison control with related issues than had in the two years prior. Essentially, a warning became a recommendation. Telling people not to do something made them more likely to do it. Um, and you might be sitting there going, okay, I, I get it. That's sort of a funny example, but what does that have to do with me, right? I spend a lot of time telling people to do something, not, not to do something. But it turns out at the core, there's the exact same problem. Uh, and it's this issue of, of reactance, right? When we tell people to do something, or even when we tell them not to do something, uh, it encourages them to push back, right? People like to feel like they have freedom and control over their choices. Why did I buy a certain product or use a certain service? Uh, I did it because I liked it. I'm the one who liked it. I liked it. I'm in the driver's seat. But when we push them to do something, now it's not clear whether they're in control or whether we're in control, right? Am I doing it because I like it or because someone told me uh, to do it? And they essentially have an ingrained anti-persuasion radar uh, that goes up when they feel someone's trying to persuade them right? Um, uh, they avoid the message or ignore it, right? They delete the email, they hang up on the sales call, or even worse, they counter-argue. Yes, someone might be in a meeting seeming like they're listening to what we're saying, but they're not actually listening. They're sitting there thinking about all the reasons why we're suggesting is wrong, is a bad idea, right? They're counter-arguing because to agree with us means that they're no longer in the driver's seat, right? That reactance, that anti-persuasion radar, they're trying to go, okay, I want to be in control. I want to be free to make my own choices. And so I'm going to engage in defensive measures to avoid being persuaded. And so how do we deal with that, right? How do we solve uh, that, that problem? How do we reduce reactance uh, in, in a sense? Uh, and so in the book, I talk about, I think, four or maybe even five ways to do it. But I'll mention just one or, or maybe two here. Um, and one is to do uh, what I'll call providing a menu. 
Uh, and think about right back to that meeting that we're in, for example, um, and we're suggesting a particular course of action. We're suggesting a client buy a particular type of thing, or we're suggesting a colleague uh, use a certain initiative or certain way uh, of doing things, right? Um, we think it's a great idea. We're listing a lot of reasons why it's a great idea, but that person is listening and thinking about all the reasons why it's not going to work. Oh, it's too expensive, or oh, it's not going to integrate with our existing systems, or oh, of course, you'd say it's good, it's your thing, but how do I know uh, it's actually good? And so kind of poking and prodding our argument till it comes crumbling down. Um, and so what great salespeople, uh, great catalysts often do is they don't give people one option, they give them multiple, right? Because giving people multiple options subtly shifts the role of the listener. Rather than sitting there, and going, well, okay, this isn't gonna work, or I don't like this. If you give people multiple options, a couple, maybe three, what they start doing is they start going, well, which of these options do I like better? Which one is the best fit for me? And because it subtly shifts the role to the listener, because they're focused on which one is the best for them, they're much more likely to pick one uh, at the end of the meeting, because rather than arguing, right, they're thinking about which one they like best. Rather than trying to persuade people, it's about getting them to persuade themselves. Rather than selling people, it's about getting them to buy in. It's giving them freedom and autonomy to make the choice. And you could say, well, hold on, they're not getting any choice, right? They're getting a limited set of choices. But as long as you give them an actual choice, as long as you give them a, a number of options that seem reasonable, because they're focusing on those options, they're less likely to think about all the things that are outside that, that option set. And so that's just one example. I, I talk about lots of others, everything from um, you know, asking rather than telling, using questions again to guide a journey, uh, highlighting a gap between attitudes and actions and encouraging them to realize that what they're recommending for others may not be what they're doing themselves. A whole bunch of ways to reduce reactants, not by telling people what to do, not by pushing them in a particular direction, but shaping or guiding their journey, right? Giving them the opportunity to choose, giving them that freedom and autonomy, but guiding the conversation in a right way to lead to the desired outcome. Okay, so I couldn't help but wonder, uh, the caption for the book reads, how to change anyone's mind. And I find it resonates very strongly uh, with the highly polarized political times we are living in, where everyone is kind of living in their own bubble and it's hard to build a consensus. So did you have that in mind at all when you were writing the book? The distance chapter, that talks a lot about politics. Right? It talks a lot about the challenges of, of polarization, in part because uh, not only is, is there reactance when we feel someone's trying to persuade us, we, we push back, but, but even in the case of information, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I tell a, a great story of a study that a colleague of mine uh, did, a guy at Duke University, who was trying to address polarization. And lots of people say, hey, look, if we just talk to people on the other side, it'll solve the problem. And so he thought, well, let's test that. Right? And so uh, he did a big study on Twitter where he got people to follow bots uh, from the other side of the aisle. Right? So as, as pundits have often said, oh, if we could just get people to see information from the other side, they'd be willing to listen. And so um, Republicans followed a Democratic bot, Democrats followed a Republican bot. And the notion was sort of getting information from the other side, not persuasion, literally just information. Here's some information about some of the other side's beliefs and articles and things related to him would be enough uh, to get people to change. And he was hopeful. Right? This was a huge effort, uh, spent lots of money, lots of time collecting the data, analyzed the data. What did he find? He again found a backfire effect, right? Um, Democrats who were exposed to Republican information became a little more Democratic. Uh, and Republicans uh, who were exposed to Democratic information became significantly more conservative. Why? Because they were unwilling even to listen 
to the possibility uh, of being persuaded. And, and this goes into the idea of the confirmation bias and a lot of the ideas of, of distance. You can essentially imagine people arrayed on a football field of beliefs, right? There's, you know, one end is highly liberal, the other end is highly conservative, and most of us are arrayed somewhere uh, along, uh, along that field. Um, but the challenge is there's a region uh, of acceptance, a zone of acceptance around us, maybe five or 10 yards either direction, which we'll listen to. It's not like we won't listen to anything if we're uh, liberal, for example, in the conservative direction or anything in the liberal direction if we're conservative. We're going to listen a little bit, but only so far. Outside of that zone is what's called the region of rejection, right? And that's a place where I'm unwilling to even consider the possibility uh, of change. I'm unwilling to even listen to the, in, the information. And so this happens a lot in politics, but it also happens a lot uh, in marketing and sales, right? Sometimes we ask people to do something that's too far from where they are at the moment. And if it's too far, if it falls in that region of rejection, they're not only not going to do it, they're going to be unwilling to even listen to the possibility. Uh, of changing. And so I talk about in the book a lot of ways to, to deal with that, to shrink distance, everything from, you know, asking for less and chunking the change, um, uh, you know, finding uh, a, a, a switching point uh, or a, um, an unsticking point, a point where we find a dimension rather a place where we're very far apart, we find another dimension on which we're, we're closer together. But it's really about sort of figuring out a way to shrink that distance uh, and, and make it more manageable. All right, that was the last question. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrows Market of the Month. That was Jonah Berger, who is a marketing professor at Wharton and the internationally best-selling author of Contagious, Invisible Influence, and The Catalyst. Thanks for joining us, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Do check out his website for more details, and we'll see you once again next month for another Market of the Month. Thank you.